Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hageman, coming to you every Tuesday with our tales of the weird, mysterious, historical, random, whatever the case may be. Uh, Jenny is the keeper of our topics. I am the random guy that tries to guess what we're talking about and see if I know anything about it. Um, and with that in mind, Jenny, uh, give me some hints. What are, what are we talking about this week? Well, we're going to talk about... A major event that has a name that's associated with it that very funnily is not used in the same context in modern times. Um, now it's kind of a like rite of passage for party girls. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Major I mean, event, rite of passage for party girls. Yeah. Oh, what the heck would this be? Um, the invention of Chippendale furniture, isn't it? So I don't, I don't know what it is. No, but that is that is a good one. Um, I'm going to use the phrase, I want to celebrate my dirty 30s. Ah. So it's a major historical event based on ah, okay. the phrase dirty 30s. The Dust Bowl. All right. The Dust Bowl. That's nice. right. Yes. So, yeah. In the 1930s, there was a drought that covered basically the entire plains of the United States for almost a decade. Um, the most direct effect, of course, was agricultural in nature. A lot of crops were damaged by insufficient rainfall, super high temperatures, high winds, insect infestations, and dust storms that came along with this problem. Because you just have these massive wide expanses with nothing and nothing and topsoil got displaced. So the resulting agricultural depression um, contributes greatly to the Great Depression's bank closures, business losses, increased unemployment, and tons of physical and emotional hardships. So a lot of things contributed to this. Um, and it wasn't just like one thing that caused it. So a lot of people will refer to the 1930s drought alone as like one specific episode. And it wasn't. Okay. okay. Uh, it was four distinct drought events hmm. that took place 1930, 1934, 1936, and 1939 through like 1940. Okay. It's just that they happened so quickly back to back that nobody was able to recover before the next one started. That makes sense. Yeah. I know very, you know, I mean, I, I know about the event, but I know very little specifics about when and the actual different sub-events and stuff. Yeah, it's all, all new to me. Right. And I mean, the, the long-term effects of this were pretty horrific because there were economic and social effects that came as a result of directly of the drought. So mm -hmm. people migrated from drought areas headed west to try to find work because there was nothing in these areas because there was no farming to do. And they were in direct competition for jobs with people who'd already been in the area for a long time, creates a bunch of conflict. In addition, you get poverty and high unemployment, you get migrants added, and it just was too much for like the relief and health agencies in the area. They just couldn't keep up with things. 
So you've got massive drought. We've got the Great Depression. We've got economic overexpansion. You also have really poor land management practices, which contributed greatly to the same problem. Yeah, that's one of the ones that I know about with basically, yeah, tilling things back up and stuff instead of leaving the leaving the stems in and all that good stuff. So exactly. So now we rotate crops and do all sorts of stuff to try to manage the land better, to keep the soil porosity high, to keep roots so that the topsoil doesn't disappear. There's a lot of things that you can do now that we've learned in hindsight, Mm -hmm. and this is why. Um, And, you know, the other problem was that this wasn't a small swath of land. It was massive, the amount of land we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So to cope with and recover from the drought, people were, you know, relied on their own ingenuity, their own resilience, a little bit of relief aid from federal and state governments. Um, but not everybody could, so which is why they migrate. So it's absolutely impossible if you wanted to try to calculate um, exactly what it cost from the 1930s droughts. But you can see that the government um, has claims that totaled one billion in 1930s dollars <laughs> by the end of the drought. Yeah. So it started clear back in the 1920s, actually. Um, In the 1920s, farmers saw opportunities to increase their production. There's new technology. There's lots of crop varieties. So you could reduce the time and it would cut cost of acreing. Nope, cut costs of farming per acre. All those words were out of order. Mm -hmm. Um, But this provided a really great incentive to expand their agricultural endeavors. It was also necessary to pay for all this new expensive shit that they were getting in, right? Like combines ain't cheap. And they often purchased them on credit to offset the low crop prices that came in after World War I. So you've got national economy going into decline in the late 20s. um, And agriculture kind of sucks. And then in 1931, wheat crop prices dip terribly. And these lower prices mean that the farmers need to put in more crops. They need to cultivate more acreage. This includes areas that maybe are not prime planting areas. And they need to change their crop varieties enough to meet their bare minimum equipment and farm payments, or they're going to lose everything. So the drought starts. Everything sucks. (laughs) It's all Mm -hmm. going to hell in a handbasket quickly. Um, And it hits people in the Great Plains the hardest. And so these farmers seek government assistance as quickly as possible. So in 1937, there's a bulletin that reports that 21% of all rural families in the Great Plains were receiving federal emergency relief. That's a pretty high number for farmers Mm -hmm. that are pretty stubborn about accepting money. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But even with this help, a lot of farmers couldn't maintain their operations and they have to leave. Some voluntarily deed their farms to their creditors, others wait to be foreclosed on, and others just temporarily have to leave to provide work to provide money for the farm. At the peak of farm transfers in 1933 through 1934, so right in the middle of the four depressions, mm-hmm. one in 10 farms changed possession, with half of those being involuntary. That's pretty wild. Yeah, it's a lot of people. 
So I said poor land management was one of the issues. So some of the land use patterns and methods of cultivation could be traced back over 100 years at this point. So they'd been doing things since the 1830s. And people really didn't understand the region's climate even still. Um, they had explored the region, but they weren't studying the region for its potential. So they didn't quite understand what they could do for it. Mm -hmm. So when they sent findings back to the government in what during Western expansion, they were like, oh, the land is plentiful. Um, boosters of the region wanted to promote settlement. So they kept talking about these glowing accounts of the Great Plains agricultural potential. But it wasn't really ever assessed for its ability to provide agriculture either. Okay. So you have this inaccurate information. Uh, most settlers that arrived had very little money. They didn't really have a lot of tools. And their farming experience was either non-existent or based on farming in the eastern United States where it's really humid. And so their practices were based on a different climate. So when they come to, to the Great Plains, they're trying to incorporate a lot of practices where the soil would be naturally very wet and sandy and things grew like a, a weed mm -hmm. to very clay, rocky, wet, destroyed soil. Yeah. Yeah, no, makes me think of, uh, oh, well, back, I read an interesting thing about Kansas, you know, since from Kansas, and they were, then realized there was like a super mega drought similar to that back in like the 18, late 1860s, early 1870s that basically drove everybody out of Kansas. Right. Because of that, that nobody knew how to deal with it. Exactly. But rather than like really change how they did everything, everybody just kind of left. And then, then the drought went away and people kind of came back and there wasn't really a big adjustment to to dealing with that because everybody was just like, oh, well, everything's fine now. <laughs> and then, yeah, the Dust Bowl eventually rolled around. But well, yeah, because apparently we're on a cycle where they call it like the 100 year droughts and the 100 year mm -hmm. floods. So like we're currently right on the edge of the 100 year droughts. Yeah, we're, we're ready for a big Midwest mega drought. So right. Sounds miserable. Great. Yeah. Good times. Can't wait. Yeah. Now that, the, now that the aquifers dry and all that good stuff, it's just in time for all of the western part of the state to blow away. So, ah, Good times. So when the earliest settlements came to the Midwest and the Great Plains, it occurred during a wet cycle. So at the beginning of Western expansion, crops flourished at first. Everything was working well. Settlers were super encouraged to continue things that they later have to abandon. So you get this great combination in the Midwest that I think people forget about. Um, not only do you have really hot, dry summers, you have really harsh, cold, wet winters. Mm -hmm. So there's this really widespread economic hardship and a ton of human suffering because it's just really crappy conditions um, in comparison to what they're used to. But yep. in the beginning, when it rained, it was like, it doesn't matter. It was the great leveling factor. Okay. Yeah, everybody forgets that we're basically living in Siberia here. So that's just like, <laughs> yeah. The difference between Kansas and Siberia is really negligible. <laughs> it is. It really is. And 
the the thing is, is like you said, there was that drought not long after, right? So mm-hmm. adverse conditions, a lot of settlers are just like, I am not going to stay here. This is not what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So a lot of settlers return to the Eastern United States or they continue on to the West. And the idea that the climate of the Great Plains changing um, in response to human settlement starts to get popularly accepted during the later mm-hmm. half of the 19th century. It, it's included in legislative acts like the Timber Culture Act, which is based on the belief if um, settlers plant trees, it would encourage rainfall. Oh, my God. I forgot to mention this because I just remembered <laughs> it's like having one of those moments while I was looking this up. I found out about water witchery, which really took off during this period of time. Oh, and I wanted to just go. change nice. the whole topic of the episode of that. <laughs> yeah. Dowsing rods and fun stuff like that. Or... Yeah. It's I've got stuff to add there, too. So, yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. And I'll talk more about um, water people soon, but that just hit me that I forgot water witchery was such a huge like rise during this period of time. And that phrase was just fantastic. Um, So yeah, you've got things like that. um, And it's not until the 19 or the 1890s that this idea is abandoned, uh, which is sad. Yeah. People lose their faith a little bit, but repeated droughts test them and the local and state governments, of course, And then you get periods of plentiful rainfall. So it's like, don't worry, we don't need to change anything. You know, we had a rough year. Next year is going to be great. The next year is great. And then a rough year. And then it's fine. You know, it eventually balances. Several actions in the 20s also increase the vulnerability. So you've got low crop prices, high machinery costs. So they're expanding more land to meet more payments. Um, Since the best farming areas are already in use, they're using really crappy farming areas that they shouldn't because it's mostly shale. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of their submarginal lands don't do much because there's a ton of soil erosion and nutrient leaking. And by using them, they're increasing the likelihood of failure, which increases the vulnerability. It's that horrible self-perpetuating cycle. So these economic conditions... Uh, create pressure on farmers to abandon soil conservation on top of everything else. So a lot of farmers switch from um, the lister to the more effective one-way disc plow, which also increased the risk of blowing soil. So that also increased the soil flying away. (laughs) They did everything they could to truly just mess with the land before they get here, right? Yeah. Yeah, you get the nice perfect storm of everything, <laughs> everything bad happening. Yeah, they just totally set themselves up for if if things were going to go to hell in a handbasket, they were going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. So during the 1930s, they have to come up with a lot of ways to relieve the impacts of these droughts and reduce their vulnerability to dry conditions. Um, so many of the measures were initiated by the federal government, which was pretty new. I mean, previously it was up to the discernment of the local farmers. Um, before the 30s droughts, the federal aid had been withheld in emergency situations because they just were like, you'll figure it out. Um, and a lot of people did, mm-hmm. but that changed during the Great Depression um, and with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So you, the Depression helped soften deep-rooted hardline attitudes of free enterprise, individualism, and passive role of government. Um, it allows for the New Deal programs and provided framework for drought for drought relief, which is great considering these drought relief programs are credited with saving the livelihoods of a lot of people during this period of time. 
So the programs had a lot of goals as government contracts always do. Just want to put that out there. They always do. This is like getting a special grant. You can get it in anything, (laughs) but there's strings attached. (laughs) So all of the goals are aimed at reducing drought impacts and vulnerability. So number one, they provided emergency supplies, things like cash, livestock feed, transport to maintain the basic functioning of livelihoods um, and farms and ranches. They established healthcare facilities to meet emergency medical needs, which that is some foresight right there. Farmers are not medical attention seekers. So that's genius. Yeah, Um, we're now undoing that. (laughs) Yeah, we're actively undoing that as quickly as we can. We're now trying to lose all of our rural healthcare. So, you know, it's it's all good. Which was established, you know, keep the country alive. No big deal. Um, They established government-based markets for farm goods. So things like higher tariffs, loan funds, um, things like that. They provided supplies and technology. So things that would advance research, implement, um, and promote appropriate land management strategies. So this is why like K-State owns just a bunch of random fields where they have like test things happening. Mm -hmm. They may have crops growing there, but the crop may not even be the thing that they're doing. Yep. Right. And then finally, they would remove dead trees and plant new trees. Um, Apparently, this alleviated psychological stress. Okay. And created shelter belts. Unfortunately, we planted the wrong kinds of trees. So now they're constant. Yeah. (laughs) So now we constantly are fighting with them. Things like the cottonwoods that are terrible for the Flint Hills or the Bradford pears. Yeah that we planted the wrong ones of, and now everyone's allergic to them and it's miserable. (laughs) No, I don't have a Bradford pear in my front yard. Will, do you? Thankfully, no. I do. It's the worst. Both my dog and I are allergic to it. Uh, The worst thing I ever had was the yard of our house that we originally moved to in Manhattan had a, we finally figured out it was a Chinese chestnut, but it dropped these little death balls that were, horrible are those the little spike ones they're like the spike ones but they're there's lots of little spiky balls but these were special i mean they would go through your shoe oh wow yeah i mean you couldn't even pick them up with gloves because they go right through leather rather leather gloves i mean it was bad and then of course the little spikes break off so even like when you manage to get them out of your yard you can't walk barefoot in the yard because you'll just right get stuck by it was it was a mess so, I wonder if you could use one of those little golf ball collectors to collect those. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you'd still have spikes everywhere. Yep. Just burn the whole thing. <laughs> burn it. Burn into the ground. Yeah. Understandable. So, as important as all these programs are, the survival of a majority of the families um, pretty much relied on the families. So, whether or not they stayed or they moved, um, you know, it totally required a lot of ingenuity, resilience, and humility because they were going to encounter a ton of hardships and obstacles no matter what they chose to do. And if they chose to remain in these drought regions, they endured severe dust storms, their health goes to shit, they have no income, they have animal infestations, physical and emotional stress is super high. Um, they did have an interesting coping mechanism. Black humor uh, mm-hmm. is apparently what Americans do. Yeah, so, especially Midwesterners. I- <laughs> right? 
this dark humor of just terrible stories that you tell. So an example is they would tell stories about birds that learned how to fly backwards. So they would keep from getting sand in their eyes. (laughs) Uh, Housewives would scour pots and pans by holding them up to a keyhole to get it sandblasted clean. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And children who had never seen rain were the like favorite stories that people told during the yeah. dust era. Like these kids have never seen rain, you know, they're like <laughs> pandemic babies. Yep. Although I'm telling you what, it, this goes to show that like kids are resilient because I'll tell you what, I bet these dust bowl babies are just like pandemic babies. They have zero fears. <laughs> yeah. I've got stories to tell maybe a little later if, holdovers from the dust bowl that i you know didn't even really think about until recently what's go ahead tell us yeah oh i was just thinking it it, through with the discussion of i i annoy amy all the time because i i'm the primary dish doer and whenever i'm done with the cups i put them you know up in the cupboard and it always drives her crazy because i always put them upside down with you know basically rim down which she can't stand because it's like, you're getting the rim dirty where you drink. Like, why are you putting them down? And it's like, because that's how I was taught to do it. And the reason I was taught to do it is that's how my mom was taught to do it. She was taught to do it because she was taught by my grandma who learned to do it that way because she grew up in the Dust Bowl. And like, you had to put all of your dishware upside down when you stored it because it would fill with dust. Jesus Christ, Will, if you're telling me that this is the reason why I, I learned how to store all of my glassware upside down. Yep. You've just broken my brain. I just yep, thought that's, that this that's was something why we that do we that. Did. You know, that's why, you know, people, everyone's like, why the hell do you do that? And it's like, I don't know. That's just how you do it. Right. But that's, that's, that's how I was taught. That's why that's I do how it. I was like taught, it. but that's all dust bowl. Yeah. I bet too, like, cause there, there's a shit ton of grasshoppers, which I'll get into, but like, I don't yeah. want to pick up a glass and find a grasshopper in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you store your stuff that way. Cause you, you know, you know, that way you can clean it and you can guarantee that the, the inner surface of your thing stays clean until you use it. So, sorry, Gross. <laughs> it's true though. So, the drought and all the impacts start to slowly, finally, break down in the spring of 1938. By 1941, most of the areas of the country received near normal rainfalls. Um, this rain, along with the outbreak of World War II helps to alleviate a lot of these domestic economic problems that are associated with the 1930s. Um, New production demands and positive climate conditions, of course, bring rapid economic boom. What? (laughs) Everything's working. People are getting healthy and they suddenly can work more. This is wild. This is absolutely new information. So short-term conditions seem relatively stable, of course. Um, There is some drawback to this production growth, however. One drawback is that the start of World War II shifted the remaining funds and priorities away from those drought funds. So men were taken off of work programs to enter the armed forces and produce for the war effort. And then items like gasoline and replacement parts were redirected from federal drought and conservation programs to the war, which means that you couldn't do conservation programs and research was significantly reduced during this period of time. And then the other big drawback There were two big ones, remember? Mm -hmm. The return of the rains, a lot of people were like, we don't need to do the conservation programs and things during that occurred during the 20s. 
So a lot of people just went right back to their shitty ways. Uh, that made everything super vulnerable. So that was, that was pretty shitty. So we haven't seen another drought quite to this extent until 1988. I remember and that. You remember this? Yeah. Yeah. So in 1988, this is the most economically devastating natural disaster in the history of the United States. Shocking, right? Um, the close second is the series of droughts that affected in the 1930s. So the 1988 droughts were actually worse economically than the ones in the 1930s. So mm-hmm. determining the direct and indirect across costs associated with this period of droughts is difficult just because of the broad impacts of the drought. Um, the events close association with the Great Depression, the revival of the fast revival of the economy because of World War II. Um, also, they just don't have adequate economic models for evaluating losses. So that's why the 1988 event kind of is higher rated. Yeah. Because they had all that shit in place. So in 1937, the Works Progressive Administration reported the drought was the principal reason for the economic relief assistance in the Great Plains during the 30s. Federal aid um, was given for the first time in 1932, but the first funds marked specifically for drought relief was not until 1933, and like I said, reached upwards of a million dollars by the end of the drought, or a billion dollars by the end of the drought. Three-fifths of all first-time rural relief cases in the Great Plains area were directly related to the drought. A disproportionate number of the cases were farmers. So 68 to like 70% of the people that received relief were farmers. Um, but the remaining cases, they like that 32% were mostly indirect, like costs related to the drought. Okay. Um, 21% of all rural families were receiving federal relief by 1936. In particularly hard hit counties, though, it was 90%. Wow. which is wild, but also keep in mind that in some counties it might be one family. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it is harder to, to talk about that. So if we jump down the rabbit hole and just kind of talk about things related to the dust bowl, because it's kind of an interesting period of time. So much is going on, right? So during the dust bowl period, there's dust storms. They're called black blizzards and yeah. they sweep across the great plains. Sometimes they carry topsoil from as far as listen, Oklahoma to Washington, D.C. and New York City. Like they blow for a long time. And when the clouds of dust would darken the sky, sometimes it would last four days at a time. And in places it drifted like snow and they had to clear it off with shovels, which just blows my mind when you think about it. Yeah. And it would work its way through the cracks of every home, even if you thought it was well-sealed. So like you said, it would be on everything, in cupboards, on food, on your skin, on the furniture. And it's so bad that people start to develop this um, upper respiratory disease called dust pneumonia. And what happens with that is that they start to experience chest pain and a difficulty breathing. Um, And it's it's clear that hundreds of thousands of people died from this disease as a result of this. Um, <clears throat> much like miners, Dust Bowl residents exhibited signs of silic- silicosis from breathing in the fine silt part- 
particulates, which have a high silica content. So the pneumonia was actually called the brown plague. And it was particularly lethal for children, infants, and the elderly. Just, just terribly sad. Um, One of the worst dust storms, there's two of them. So one on May 11th of 1934, there's a massive dust storm two miles high that traveled 2000 miles to the East coast. And it blots out. So you can't even see the statue of Liberty or the U S Capitol. It's that like thick. <laughs> That's wild. Could you imagine in, I I'm sorry, DC is a little bit, not my favorite town. So <laughs> I say this with the love in my heart. It is so humid and gross there, even when it's not raining, that it's yeah. just damp. The amount of dirt that was coming for this humid area. Ew. Is all I can say. Yeah. That's wild. Right. I believe it. Like, you know, I remember just in Florida and stuff, every once in a while, you get a big dust storm blowing off of Africa and all of a sudden the the air would turn hazy and everything. So it's amazing how stuff like that will travel. Well, so this other um, dust storm happened on April 14th of 1935. It was so big that they named it the Black Sunday. (laughs) And the dust started in the Oklahoma panhandle and spread east. And they think as many as 3 million tons of topsoil was blown off the Great Plains that day and spread to the east. Which is just a lot. They're charging all those eastern states for our soil. Yeah, I, I, (laughs) I don't like it. So the storms created so much static electricity between the ground and the airborne dust that blue flames would leap when it touched barbed wire fences. (laughs) So if you were outside and you were like shaking hands with people, it would generate a spark so powerful it could knock you both to the ground. Jeez. And remember, this is during the early years of cars. So let's say you were out in your car and you were driving around and one of these dust storms kicks up. The static electricity could short out the engine in your car and the car radio. So motorists driving through dust storms would drag chains from behind their car to ground it. (laughs) Oh, man. Will, what happens if my car gets hit by lightning? What do I do? Um, Not much. Just sit there and wait and hope it dissipates. Like, is that how it works? Yeah. I mean, it'll, it, it'll dissipate. So if you're, if you're in your car, you're generally okay because all the metal frame of the car is around you. So you're, you're not going to be affected and it'll it'll jump to ground so it won't have a residual charge on it after you're after you got hit but okay so like i can open my car door and still get out after it's been hit yep yep pretty you're quickly right. not, i don't have to wait like a period of time yep yep you're good because the voltage that it took to jump from the cloud down to your car was a whole lot more than what it takes to jump from the bottom of your car to the ground so you're you're pretty well it's all it's all out of there you're good Good. Glad that glad that we had this talk because this bothers me every year that I don't know that answer. Now I know. Yep. You should, you should be safe. And I guess if you're not, then tell me. <laughs> You'll be the first person It shocks the shit out of you when you get out of your car after you get hit by lightning. Let me know. But you <laughs> I'll call you. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all your fault, damn it. You told me to get out of the car. But yeah. <laughs> so after Black Sunday, that's when they came up with the term Dust Bowl. It came along with there. Okay. Um, roughly 2.5 million people left Dust Bowl states. Uh, so you got Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma during the 30s, and it's one of the biggest migrations in American history. So Oklahoma alone lost about a half a million people. 
Most were extremely poverty stricken and started heading west. Um, about half of those people moved to California and about a third of those people ended up in San Joaquin Valley. Because they were infringing themselves upon these already established towns and stealing jobs, um, they were called Okies and they faced discrimination. They got menial labor tasks and payable wages. They lived in shanty towns and in tents along irrigation ditches. Um, and of course, Okie soon becomes a term of disdain. Um, and everybody who's a decibel migrant starts to get called an Okie, no matter if you were from that area or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you got the old grapes of wrath and everything. So. Exactly. Yeah, that's where some of this comes from. So if all this isn't gross enough for you, Will, if it's not bad enough that you're just sitting in your home and suddenly it's blackout and there's dust coming through every crack and cranny in your home, a seemingly biblical plague of jackrabbits and grasshoppers descend upon the plains as well. <laughs> so that let's would be see, weird. Wouldn't it? Every time they say we're about to have a cicada infestation, this is how we picture it, right? Yeah. So let's say you were able to get a crop to grow, just menial. You've got little bits coming up and you're super stoked. You're like, we're going to make it. We're going to get something. We're going to survive. These little shitheads would come and just take over and the grasshoppers would eat your crop before you could get them to grow. And then you've got all these jackrabbits, which also eat everything in sight. I can tell you from like experience, rabbits are not your favorite thing to have in your yard. Yeah. So to... (laughs) To combat the jackrabbit problem, Dust Bowl State staged rabbit drives. <laughs> it's terrible. Absolutely terrible. But essentially, it was similar to like what they used to do with buffalo on the plains, where they would like drive them all in an area and then dispatch them. Mm-hmm. You know, with buffalo, it was over a cliff. With <laughs> Sorry to laugh. It's so terrible, but it's so <laughs> ridiculous sounding in this day and age. Mm-hmm. They corral them into pins and then they dispatch them aggressively with baseball clubs and bats. Jesus. Makes me think of the Simpsons whacking day sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's so ridiculous sounding. Yeah. Like everybody get your club and go beat a snake to death today. (laughs) Just like everybody's going to get their whacking stick and go get a rabbit. I said, it's so ridiculous sounding. It's hilarious sounding. It's terrible. It's not funny. And I don't mean to laugh. It's truly terrible, but it just is so ridiculous. So like, this isn't bad enough. The grasshoppers had a really interesting migration pattern. Um, It wasn't like they just gently popped over on your fields in like hordes. They came in like clouds. So a lot of times it was hard to distinguish if it was the dust or the grasshoppers because they would come in with 20,000 insects per acre and consume everything in their wake. They were just intense. So the only thing that they could do was contact the national guard, which seems like a very logical um, risk to take. And the national guard was called out to once again, that sounds a little bit ridiculous, but they crushed the grasshoppers with tractors And then anytime that they would find an infested field, they burned it. Yeah. And then the the civilian corps 
spread out insecticide, which involved arsenic, molasses, and bran. How did we survive? Like there's arsenic in our soil. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Yeah. <laughs> and molasses. So, you know. And molasses. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. One of the things I said I would talk about was um, the things they did to try to make it rain. Huh. Were amazing. So they had um, water witches, essentially, that would show up to try to bring water. The government actually paid people to do rain dances kind of scenarios because they had people that said they could call the rain to them. And they were so desperate. They were literally willing to try anything to make it rain. So you had a dowsing story for me, Will. A dowsing rod? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it actually comes back to government contracts again, but... Uh... You have your classic little, you know, dowsing rod, which is your little stick that you wave back and forth. It tells you where the water is and stuff, but people use it for all kinds of different things, you know, to find different stuff. Right. So basically any kind of randomly wiggling thing that you basically interpret as leading you to something. But just made me think of, I, I went to the Centennial American Physical Society meeting and uh, James Randi, who's now passed away, had a whole talk on, you know, pseudoscience and there was basically a company that was selling basically effectively dowsing rods to the U.S. government to try to find like illegal aliens and drugs and other stuff. So it was basically a little device that actually didn't have any power, but had a little thing that wiggled back and forth. And they sold, you know, little chips that you could put into it. So you could put in like the illegal alien chip and then it would like find illegal aliens for you. Or you could like put in the cocaine chip and it would find like cocaine and they were basically giving it to cops who then were immediately basically just, you know, profiling people and pulling them over. So yeah, great yeah. stuff, but all the same pseudoscience little thing. So, well, you know, it's funny because you can't actually discount dowsing. Yeah. A hundred percent. Right. Because mm-hmm. they're still right. 50% of the time. Yeah. And actually some, People are so good at it. They're pretty accurate, like 90% accuracy rate. And the question is why, right? Yeah. And it comes down to people that do these things eventually have a pretty good intuition about where to find water and the stick doesn't have a damn thing to do with it. But, but yeah, you know, but same way that like everybody using a Ouija board swears to God, they're not moving the planchette around, you know, I mean, sometimes people are doing it intentionally, but a lot of times you have people that are really, you know, literally just it, it kind of goes where they think it's going to go because they all expect it to go to yes. And it just kind of happens to go to yes. Well, people it's kind of like, water just happens to point in that valley over there where they think there's going to be water, you know? Well, it's a lot like the people that can smell rain. I am one of those people. I think mm-hmm. this is a Midwest trait, though, that we've learned how to smell like the fungus yeah. in the soil. Yeah. But there are people that don't that subconsciously don't even realize that they're attuned to, oh yeah, if you see this collection of trees or this kind yeah. of grass, but yeah. like there's water here. Yeah. There's water here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean they totally believe that it's the stick, but it's just their experience that's telling them where to go. But exactly. And but when yeah, they get and excited, it starts this. shaking or whatever. But that's why I thought it was this thing was, you know, cropped back up for people doing drug busts and then it went away and then I was shocked because the same thing came back again in the early, you know, Iraq war, because they suddenly started selling the same things to people to find IEDs 
oh, and yeah. stuff on the roadside, you know, complete bunk crap, but people were finding them because people, you know, generally knew where to look. <laughs> it's like, you know. Well, and people are so desperate to find a way to make this stuff more consistent and easier. Mm -hmm. And what they don't realize is that human intuition is absolutely and desperation is a lot of times the bigger take. Because if this dowsing worked, the guys at Oak Island would have found something. (laughs) Yep. But, you know, it's all it's all interesting stuff. I mean. Lots of fun psychological stuff that goes into those kinds of things. True. Well, well, this was the interesting story of the Dust Bowl. Yeah, very cool. I mean, it's it's a fascinating time. It made me think. uh, The only other comment I had was, you know, watching Interstellar was really fascinating because they linked up to the Dust Bowl. And oh, really? You ever have you seen that? Mm -mm. Oh, okay. You should watch it. But basically, it's a a future where there's this blight that's killing plants and it's very dust bowl like, but they, in they have it interspersed with like, you know, testimony from old people that are basically talking about the dust bowl days, but they're using it in this context of like this thing happening. And it's kind of cool because the actual footage is real and it's actually people talking about the dust bowl, but oh wow, play it off as people talking about this, this thing that's happening, looking back at it and stuff. It's kind of cool. So interesting. Well, that sounds like a worthy watch. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. So there's lots of talk about it being all all down with the physics, which it kind of is, but also kind of isn't. So that's kind of you know, <laughs> think if people had to build it that way, it wouldn't have irritated me as much as it did in a few places. But you know, well, that's not like so when... much with the physics being screwed up, but the people not understanding it. It's like these people's job is to understand something basic like this. Like I know how to do this stuff. Why would they not realize this is going to happen? But right, whatever. It's kind of like when the show Big Bang Theory came out, and at first you were like, "Oh, the science is great," and then as mm-hmm. the series went on, you're like, "Oh, they gave up on that, huh?" Yeah, <laughs> yep. Because it's always yeah. more entertaining to not. But right, right. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, cool topic. And, uh, you know, thanks everybody for listening this week. You know, as always, rate, subscribe, review, tell your friends about our podcast, and we will catch you all in a week. Bye, folks. Bye.